From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Anthony Albanese has now confirmed he'll be heading to China before the end of the year, the first Australian Prime Ministerial visit since Malcolm Turnbull's in 2016. It's the culmination of an improvement in Chinese-Australian relations since the change of government. Today we're joined by Richard McGregor, China expert and senior fellow at the Lowy Institute of Foreign Affairs think tank. Richard McGregor, how important is this visit by the Prime Minister? Well, I guess we'd start from the fact that any Prime Ministerial uh, overseas trip is important, particularly this one, though. Uh, we haven't had uh, a Prime Minister in China for you know six, seven years. We all know why that's the case. It's not just COVID. It's also because Australia's relationship with China went downhill um, slowly, then quickly, uh, to the point where we didn't have any political dialogue at all for about two to three years. Now, it's been a gradual process uh, to get back to this point of Mr Albanese actually going to China and uh, meeting Xi Jinping there. I think the government obviously had a, a good long think about whether this was the right thing to do. And, and it's not just about whether you go, it's how you go. So uh, it's important. China is uh, particularly in the region uh, as well, our position in Southeast Asia, our position in the Pacific and our alliance with the United States, all are affected by the China relationship. We should note at this stage that we don't have a date for this visit. We just know it'll be before the end of the year. Now, the Labor government has been very careful in this uh, improving relationship with China. It hasn't wanted to seem to be giving too much ground to China. But are there any risks for the Prime Minister in this visit? What will the Chinese want to get out of it? I think there are risks, undoubtedly. We're going up to another level uh, in what the Chinese call a reset, but we studiously uh, call stabilisation. The reason we don't say reset is because we don't believe the relationship is going back to where it was. Um, what's the Chinese interest? I think that the Chinese uh, see value in stabilising relations with Australia in as much as it sort of turns off a very bad signal that the bilateral fight was sending to the rest of the world. You know, we, Australia and China had a uh, deep divisions. We made a lot of noise about it. Uh, many countries which normally wouldn't really take much notice of Australian foreign policy, particularly in Europe, to some extent in, in a different way in Southeast Asia, in Japan and South Korea, have all watched Australia closely for lessons about how to manage such, you know, sort of the, the downside of the relationship. And I think for China, uh, it wasn't working for them uh, as well for all sorts of reasons. So the election allowed, the, you know, the beginning of the stabilisation, and I think the Chinese are, are taking advantage of that. I might say one other thing that I think you know, the, um, you know, it's a bilateral relationship, but the decision to get it back on track is pretty much a Chinese decision in many ways. And I think we are a bit of a price taker in the relationship. In other words, China uh, could have stuck it out for much longer. Uh, they no longer see the value in that. But the relationship is getting better primarily because uh, China has decided uh, it's open to that. 
So in this sense, is Australia something of a pawn for China in its wider relationships, especially with the United States? Well, I certainly don't think we're a pawn, and I guess that's the problem for China is that we have not been a pawn. If we're going to use a word like that, then of course the Chinese would think that we are a pawn used by America. And I think it's one of the problems for the Chinese that um, so many of their uh, bilateral relationships with developed countries are going downhill at the moment. You can look at Japan, you can look at South Korea, you can look at Canada, you can look at the UK. And a bit, the very sort of circular convenient sort of commentary within China is that all these countries are puppets of the United States. And that kind of poisons uh, the dialogue with those countries if China doesn't take them seriously. Certainly, uh, there are many people in China who, who think we are a puppet of the United States and we do their bidding. Uh, it's our job to try and persuade them that's not the case. In this better climate, do you think we'll see this year any movement on the Australians detained by China? Look, it's impossible for me to predict that, but I would say this, and this is where the risks of the Albanese uh, trip comes in. Australia has constantly said that we would go to China without any preconditions, and I think that's fair enough. But if six months after or so after the trip, uh, whenever that is, and there's been no movement on the two high-profile detainees, Chung Lei and uh, Yang Hanjun, then I think that would be very embarrassing and damaging for Mr Albanese. They've been held uh, in detention for some years now, but they've been tried so-called, or they've had so-called trials, they're really political trials. Uh, the government still doesn't know, as far as I know, exactly what the alleged transgressions are meant to be because the Chinese have shrouded it in national security. So, yes, if, if, if Mr Albanese comes and goes, uh, we have a good visit, but nothing happens with them, then I think that's a problem. Now, Australia has just uh, stepped up its joint naval patrols with the Philippines. Uh, this was uh, announced during the Prime Minister's visit there in the last few days. How is China likely to react, given how tense the recent encounters between Chinese and uh, Filipino naval vessels have been in, in recent weeks? Well, the Chinese don't like that. Uh, you've already seen those patrols attacked in the Chinese state media uh, in some parts. But I think at the moment they're not overreacting to such things with Australia because they've decided the relationship is going to get better. Uh, but longer term, no, they will note that. They will think once again we're doing it at the behest of Americans, uh, the Americans, whereas I think we're doing it for good reason to preserve the sort of, uh, you know, the rights and the freedoms of middle powers and other countries uh, in Southeast Asia. But no, I think that they are very unhappy about that. So just before we uh, move on to the trade relationship, more generally, how do you see China's general foreign policy at the moment? Look, I think in some respects, there's an element of distraction. Uh, China has you know, big domestic uh, problems at the moment, uh, most notably with the economy, which is kind of, if you want a, one way of describing it, is having a, a double dip recession. It did come out relatively strongly out of their COVID lockdowns last year, but it, instead of sort of um, uh, 
you know, rushing ahead. It's now sort of in recent months really gone into negative territory. So that's a great concern and an issue of great debate in China, uh, particularly about whether the, it's the result of poor policy decisions uh, by Xi Jinping. So there's an element of domestic focus, I think, at the moment in China. Um, secondly, the other big trends in Chinese foreign policy, I think, are as follows. First of all, there's the ongoing and, if you like, existential competition between the US and China. Everything, in some respects, re revolves around that. And the other big push you see in China at the moment is you know, to make China the voice of and the leader of the so-called, you know, global south or developing countries. Uh, and in some respects, their rivals with, with India to be that voice. One example of that we saw recently uh, when the BRICS um, uh, grouping was expanded at their recent meeting in South Africa, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, they added six new members. Subsequent to that, Xi Jinping was meant to be uh, in New Delhi for the G20 meeting, but he pretty pointedly snubbed that. Now, that may be a considered slight of India and Mr. Modi, but I think it's also because China is focusing on the parts of the world and the you know geopolitical groupings where they have friends and influence, and that's most notably the BRICS and less so G20. So, you know, US-China competition is a permanent feature of foreign policy, but so is building up China as the champion of, the voice of, and the rule maker for parts of the world which uh, feel excluded from big developed country clubs. China's come under a lot of criticism over its human rights record, including from Australia. Is any of this criticism penetrating or do they just go on as before? No, I don't think it is penetrating. Um, you know, uh, countries like Australia, more importantly, the United States has complained about China's human rights uh, record going back to the 1980s. China was a much weaker current, uh, country then. They uh, weren't receptive to the criticism at that time. As you can imagine, they're even less receptive to that criticism now. And if you see what happened in Xinjiang in recent years with the mass incarceration of mainly men um, on the, under the guise of an anti-terror campaign. China saw that criticism out uh, as well. So I, I don't think we, we moved, the, moved the dial much in that respect. Let's turn to trade. When Labor took over, there were nearly $20 billion worth of trade restrictions on our products. Now it's down to about $2.5 billion, according to Trade Minister Don Farrell. But China still has sanctions on many goods, including Australian wine, lobsters, beef and hay. You mentioned before that Albanese has not made lifting these last restrictions a condition of the visit, and you think that's appropriate. But would you be expecting these final sanctions to be lifted quite soon? Uh, look, I think they all fall into different buckets in some respects. The general answer to your question uh, is no. Uh, for example, I think Mr. Farrell says that of the 20 billion of goods affected, we're down to 2.5 billion. That's true, but it's slightly misleading in as much as we're talking about $20 billion worth of trade that was affected, um, but the parts of the trade which have been opened up again now don't really add up to 
20 billion minus 2.5 billion. It's going to take some time uh, to, for the part sectors to recover, even if they do. On the commodities or sectors which are still affected, wine, I think, is running on its own track. That's subject uh, of a World Trade Organization complaint by Australia. Until we get a draft report uh, with a resolution to that or a decision, uh, Australia seems to expect it will be in our favour. But until we get that, we'll, we'll see no movement from China, I think, and I don't know when that will come. In the other areas, we might get some sort of flashy opening or partial reopening of the punitive trade measures on areas like lobster around the time Mr. Albanese uh, is to visit. I think that's a time-honoured Chinese technique to sort of sweeten uh, you know, the tea before it's drunk. But no big change, I think. Uh, and you know, the, the bulk of trade with China, Australian trade with China, which is dominated by iron ore, LNG and the like, the bulk of that was not affected. And that was the fascinating thing about our trade dispute is because during that period, both sides tried to diversify and both sides really failed because we still have uh, complementary economies. We sell them stuff that they still need and China won't self-harm. So I don't see any big change before uh, the visit. Well, if this uh, diversification has not happened, how important is that failure? How extensive is the failure? And we saw the release last week of the government's Southeast Asia strategy, and that's about diversification. Do you think that that's adequate or that this also won't achieve much? Well, it's a diversification comes in two ways. One, number one, you sell your products to different markets, or number two, you sell different products. And the Australian, you know, iron ore and resources trade has thrived because China needed it. Over time, they'll need less of it, by the way, as they restructure their economy. So we're going to be sort of forced out of the China market or we'll have less to sell to the China market uh, in any case, whatever happens. But diversification is easier said than done. Southeast Asia is a classic case, actually. I think the government is absolutely right to uh, talk about a Southeast Asia economic strategy. Wherever you go in Southeast Asia, you know, officials complain to Australia. They say, why don't you invest more in our countries? That, that's what they want to see. But um, the government can't really do much about that. You know, we're not a command economy. We can't force Australian private economies to invest in Southeast Asia. Uh, uh, number one, they don't invest much because our companies aren't very global uh, and adventurous and risk-taking. Secondly, we, you know, we do a lot of things that Southeast Asia does, like Indonesia, commodities and the like. So in some respects, we're competitive with Southeast Asia. So we have to really lift our game as a country and really have, you know, not just sell the same thing to other markets, but sell other things to um, different markets. And it might need, you know, a really activist uh, government to give incentives for private companies to go to these countries. Obviously, an important part of our economic relationship with China is the flow of Chinese students into our universities and also, as well, the flow of Chinese tourists. Now, both those were hit during the pandemic. What's the progress of, of getting these people back, the students and the tourists? Well, let's separate them. First of all, the students weren't nearly as badly hit uh, as many people seem to think, and that's because the Chinese government 
which knows Chinese families value education, had decided pretty early on that Chinese students uh, would be allowed to complete their degrees online, which of course the Australian universities welcomed. Uh, other countries didn't allow for that. And of course, that meant that the Australian universities, which had been told to diversify away from Chinese students, the universities that hadn't done that actually thrived and did very well. And since the COVID lockdowns were finished in both countries, both China and Australia have insisted that the students now come to Australia uh, and other foreign con uh, countries to study. So that market is still thriving and the Chinese government you know, I think people forget, has, has just about no role in deciding where Chinese students study, unless they, you know, take a very draconian attitude, which they don't. You know, Chinese families, Chinese students, they decide it's their money. Uh, and China never seriously interrupted that. Tourists, obviously, that died during COVID. Uh, then it was hit further when China's uh, uh, had its sort of later lockdowns. And China did punish us a little bit by withdrawing our sort of group tour um, um, uh, permission um, uh, process, uh, which meant the return of group Chinese tours to Australia was delayed. And then there's the other issue of um, air, you know, um, airline capacity, which has been cut back greatly. So the students have not, so this, the tourists haven't gone back to where they were in 2019. And I think that'll take a long time uh, before that happens. But already we're getting healthy numbers of Chinese uh, tourists back here. The business community, or at least uh, the section of the business community that uh, does business with China, says that uh, the Prime Minister should take a business delegation with him on his visit. Do you think that's desirable? You know, I'm not so sure, to be honest. A big business delegation looks very transactional to me. I'm not sure we want our relationship by China, particularly on the first trip back by a prime minister, to be typified by that. Um, you know, we, we both sides need to sort of try and lay a political foundation for a more stable relationship ahead. Uh, arriving with uh, a great number uh, of Australian business people there. I mean, you might have a small number of people there, but a big um, business delegation, I, I don't think that fits the moment, to be honest. Just in conclusion, Richard McGregor, what do you think will be the main topics of conversation on both sides during this visit? And in particular, will climate change be one of them? Because after all, the Chinese are really lagging on getting their emissions down, aren't they? In fact, I think they're still going up. Yeah, I, I, I'm not so sure they are lagging. You know, China is a big, complicated country, but it's it's both a clean energy superpower, by the way. You know, 90% of solar panels in the world are manufactured in China. You know, I, there's all sorts of other statistics. But yes, they are struggling to get their emissions down because their economy is still growing. It's an energy-intensive economy and they use a lot of coal power. Just one figure, I think, you know, the, the share of uh, coal-fired power in the Chinese economy has gone down from about the mid-70s to mid-50s uh, percent in recent years, but because the economy has grown so much, their emissions have, have, have gone up. I think undoubtedly climate change is going to be one area of discussion between Australia and China when Mr Albanese is there. And that's one of the announceables you'll, you'll get as well, because that's something we can talk about and do concrete stuff on. Other than that, 
both sides, leaders will be laying out, I think, their view of the world, their view of the region, uh, their concerns about instability in the region and the possibility of conflict. There are all sorts of things that Mr Albanese will have to raise, human rights you mentioned, but also the cases of the uh, imprisoned Chinese Australians. And of course, Mr Albanese will continue to raise those punitive trade measures. From the Chinese perspective, they'll be complaining about the lack of independence in Australian foreign policy, about our closeness to the United States, and trying to prise us away from the various positions that we've taken uh, in recent years. So in some respects, there'll be a lot of talking past each other, but there might be a greater uh, understanding of the stabilisation of the relationship and the process. But, you know, we're not going back to the good old days, so people shouldn't expect that. What about foreign investment? Will they be pressing us to look more favourably on some of their foreign investment bids? They will. That, that's a point of conflict. Uh, I think the sorts of things that the Morrison government uh, blocked, um, you know, the takeover of a drinks company by a Chinese dairy company. I mean, I understand why the Morrison government did that at the time, was to make a political point. That sort of investment, I think, will be allowed if the Chinese uh, are still interested. But I think Australia is going to be very restrictive in the area of lithium and rare earths. Uh, and I think the Chinese will be uh, raising that quite vociferously. I expect the Australian response uh, at the top table will be vague, but we've already made it pretty clear that we're not going to allow a potentially a country which has been unfriendly and which we, you know, we have not a great deal of trust in investing in there and potentially dominating that um, industry in Australia. It's going to be a fascinating visit. Richard McGregor, thank you very much for sharing your expertise with us today. That's all for our current politics podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back again soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com. 